Grab your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Timothy. Go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 6. We're going through this book. We're hopping around a little bit, but we're back in chapter 6, verse 11 today. And the title of the message is Chase What Matters. Stole that from the Chase Bank commercials. Chase What Matters. From time to time uh, in the Bible, we're taught that faith is like something. And faith is like a race. It's like we're running towards something, a finish line. Um, But do you know, I learned something about races this week. Uh, I'm getting ready for a race. Last year, I ran a a 5K. My wife invited me to run a 5K. Do you know what a 5K is? For those of you who don't run, a 5K is 50 miles. Are you impressed? Maybe I'm not being entirely honest, but you don't know. So so this year, somebody, (laughs) Pastor Mark talked me into running a half marathon. So that's coming up in June, so I'm trying to train. I'm getting ready for a race, right? I don't expect to win. I just want to finish without passing out. So I'm learning about races. Well, somebody told me this week something interesting about the Chicago Marathon. Here's a picture of the Chicago Marathon. And and wow, I'm so envious of those people who could get in that kind of shape to run that race. And you know that they're running for the finish line. So check it out. This is, of course, what everybody wants to see, the finish line. But do you know that they're not just running towards something, that they're running away from something? Because I learned that once the Chicago Marathon starts, at a given time after the race begins, uh, they start closing the race. And you have to keep a minimum pace in the race, or the pace car at the end will catch you and will shut your race down. The way this looks is there's police cars, and they pull up behind the slowest people in the race, and they say, we're sorry, your race is over, we have to open the streets back up to traffic. And I heard that this is tragic and sad when it happens, because there's these people, and and suddenly the pace cars arrive, and they start yelling back, you're early, you're not supposed to be here yet, and they're arguing with the people who are shutting down the race. They're saying, we paid for this race, you... And there's an overweight Chicago cop in a squad car on a bullhorn saying, please get off the street, your race is over. (laughs) So they have to get off the street, and then the cop cars come by, and then the street sweepers come by. We've got a picture of that. They come by, and if you don't get off the street, you get run over. And so you got to get off the street, and then once the cop cars and the street sweepers pass a certain point, They shut down all the water stations. They shut down all the aid stations. So you're free to get back on the road if you want, but traffic is going and you've got no support. Basically, you are out of the race. When you start the marathon, you're running towards something and you're running away from something because if they catch you, your race is done. That reminds me a lot of the race of faith. We're challenged to run toward the finish line. But we are challenged to run because we're being pursued by things that want to end our race. So we're running away from things while we're running towards some things. The message today from the Bible is basically God saying to us, you need to run to win and you need to keep running so you don't lose. There are messages in the Bible with different agendas. And today the agenda is very clear. God wants to tell the people in his church, Pick up the pace. You need to run. You need to chase after the things that I've told you to pursue. And you need to leave behind the things that are trying to get you off the track. It's a wake-up call. We're going to talk about how we can chase uh, what matters. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 11, it's our verse. Do you know that I'm only preaching on half a verse today? Don't worry, you're going to get your money's worth. It'll be a full-length sermon. I can do that. Half a verse, full length. It says this, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. This week we'll talk about the first three, righteousness, godliness, faith. Next week we'll talk about love, steadfastness, and gentleness. If you want to stay in the race and move forward in your faith, write this down. The first thing you have to do is flee senseless and harmful desires. In your bulletin, you can take notes and write that down. Flee! I've got to flee senseless and harmful desires. I've got to get away from some things. It says, as for you, O man of God. This is the Apostle Paul writing to Pastor Timothy. And he's saying, hey, hey, you are a man of God. Get away from those things and get after these things. In our culture, sometimes you hear the phrase, man up, right? You heard that before. Or be a man, right? And there are sometimes commercials or products that try and call men to greater masculinity by driving that truck, right? Or, or eating at that restaurant. Man up! And here there's an apostle telling a pastor, hey, man of God, get after these things. Run the race. Flee what? Well, I lifted these words straight from, this is kind of a review verse. It looks back to what was just said. So in verse 9 it says, uh, you can be fall into temptation or a snare into many senseless and harmful desires. And in the book, what's going on in Ephesus is false teachers were luring God's people away from the pursuit of righteousness and were training them how to be wicked in the church. Sins that came up included uh, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, love of money. We're supposed to be running away from these things. Hey, Christian, God wants you to run from sin faster than you'd run from a starving grizzly. Just imagine in the wild a grizzly bear starving, licking his chops. Oh, you look like lunch. Imagine how fast you'd run away from a starving grizzly and run faster away from sin. Flee. You see, what we do is we develop a romantic relationship with our sin. We love our sin. We feel fondly for our sin. And so instead of running from sin, we court our sin. We date our sin. We, we, and then maybe, maybe when we feel convicted, we try and reduce the amount that we love our sin. That's not how we're supposed to relate to sin. We're supposed to be running from it. Why? Write this down. Because sin, it plunges us into ruin and destruction. Flee the senseless and harmful desires because it'll plunge you into ruin and destruction. That comes right from verse 9. It'll plunge people into ruin and destruction. The word for plunge implies you being drowned and falling dead to the bottom of the sea. Sin will plunge you dead to the bottom of the sea. This idea of being plunged to the depths or being shipwrecked is used in 1 Timothy a few times. It's a, it's a graphic way of telling you where sin will take you always. All right, Here's a picture of a boat, a ship that's been plunged to the bottom of the sea. And that is your spiritual future if you don't run from sin. Sin will plunge you to the depths. Whenever sin says, all aboard, you are boarding the Titanic. It will end tragically. It's only a matter of time. 
And yet sin lies to us. Each sin, the reason why we trust sin is because we think sin will take us to a better place. That greed will help to make my life better. That lust will fill me with passion. Right? That anger will get some people squared away. We think, we really think that sin will improve our lives. Sin promises to take us to paradise. Right? Hey, trust me and you'll be living the good life. This is a picture of what sin shows you. This is the postcard sin shows you. Look, this is where we're going all aboard. And then show that boat again, that ship at the bottom. And this is really where sin takes you. But that's not what sin puts on the postcard. We need to be running running from sin because sin delivers death and destruction and desolation do you know sin will plunge your family into ruin and destruction fathers your sin will plunge your family into ruin and destruction it'll happen did you hear about the guy last week who actually left his baby in a boat alone in shark infested waters did you hear about that guy check it out here's a picture it really happened All right, so it's a joke. That's a baby carrier. <laughs> Anybody expecting you can get that one? But the picture, though funny, actually illustrates something that's true spiritually. If we let sit into our homes, it will plunge our families down to the bottom of the depths. It'll shipwreck our faith. It'll shipwreck our church. So we have to flee senseless and harmful desires. Uh, let me just say this. If There is a sin in your heart that you're wooing. If there's a sin in your life that you're loving, you're holding on to, it could be a sin to help provide for yourself financially. It could be a sin relationally to be around someone who's no good for you. It could be a sin to cope with the trials of life through substances that you know you shouldn't be touching. There's a sin, the Bible is saying, run. Run, drop it, and run. And maybe God is saying to you at the beginning of this message, you need to be running from that, not playing with it. Right? You're hugging this starving grizzly, and it's time to turn and run. God will bring conviction over time. So we have to flee, run away. But we have to make sure that we're running towards the things that God has laid before us. We can't just spend our lives thinking about avoiding sin, avoiding sin. Can't do that, can't do that, can't do that. We have to be pursuing the things that God is calling us towards. So the first thing mentioned here is pursue righteousness. Write that down. Chase righteousness. Chase righteousness. Run from sin, run towards righteousness. We're talking about how Christians change here. When when we talk about how Christians change, it's a good moment for me to share with you what our church believes about how Christians change. You can make two errors in what you teach about how Christians change. We want to make sure we don't make these errors. The first one is this. The first error Christians can make in how to change is try harder. They teach try harder. Read your Bible more. Pray more. Stop drinking. Stop this. Stop going there. Get rid of your computer. And it's all external and it's all rule-based. Try harder. The try-harder method of spiritual growth doesn't work. The me giving you 10 more ways that you can do better is not going to change your heart. It's external, it's focused on force, it's focused on uh, guilt, and that's not the way Christians change. So try-harder is not going to work. But the other error is just as bad. This error is try nothing. Try nothing. So some people getting really worried 
because the try harder people were making righteousness sound a whole lot like good works of man. Those people walked all the way over here and said, you know what, when it comes to spiritual growth, we're not supposed to do anything. We're just supposed to fix our eyes on Jesus and wait for him to change us. That's an error. That's not how Christians grow. We're not supposed to teach God's people to try nothing. When God says run, we don't say rest. You understand that? When God says run, we run. And we're actually, biblically, supposed to admonish people and challenge people, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.14, who are idle. Those people who are trying nothing need to be rebuked because they're idle. Heaven forbid our church adopts a model of spiritual growth where we tell people, well, we just don't expect you to do anything because Jesus is going to get around to changing you eventually. Just sit back and wait for it to happen. Um, Try nothing. Here's a picture of a guy trying nothing. And many churches make this their spiritual discipleship plan. Well, we're just going to make sure that they know the truth about Jesus and think about it, and then Jesus is going to do the work. You see, on the one side, the try-nothing people are saying, God's will is what's going to do it. Your will is not necessary. It's an error. But the try-harder camp, they're saying, your will is what's going to do it. God's will is not necessary. That's an error, too. So how do we think Christians change? Well, let me give you the two truths of how Christians change. The two truths are this. Try with all God's might. You must summon your will and get in the game. You are not commanded to sit around and wait. You are commanded to break into a sprint, put on the armor of God, fight the good fight of faith. That's everything but becoming passive. And it's alarming when people take these calls to action, calls to human responsibility, and suddenly say, well, what that really means is you're supposed to do the hard work of rest. No, that's not what it means. It means you're supposed to get off your butt and run like you're being pursued by a lion. So you need to get your will in the game. But how? You need to try with all God's might. God, strengthen me in your spirit. You need to do it with him. Charles Spurgeon said, throw your whole soul into it. It is a call to strenuous Christian exertion. We can't take that out of the Bible. So that's one truth. The second truth is this. Try nothing without Jesus. To the try harder people, the Bible says, try with all God's might. To the try nothing people, the Bible says, try nothing without Jesus. They're right. You can't do it. You'll very quickly hit a ceiling where you're like, I tried in his might and I can't. And you're right, which is why you're trying nothing without him. Why do Christians need to constantly be reminded that you still need a Savior? Why do Christians need to be reminded that sin is stronger than you without Christ? That Satan is wiser than you without Christ? But again and again, Christians forget that I need the cross of Christ today just as much as I needed it that day I was born again. You're never going to walk away and start impressing God with your righteousness alone. It's not going to happen. All right, so how do Christians change? You believe that you have to try with all God's might, try nothing without Jesus. And just so you know, at Harvest Payless, you are never allowed to stop growing in this church. So if you stick around, we are never going to say, you're good. We're never going to challenge you to grow ever again. Bravo. That's never going to happen. 
if you want a church where you can just sit back and everyone will leave you alone and never challenge you to do anything more, this ain't the church for you. And leaders, in some churches, when leaders get into leadership, it's like, wow, well, they've arrived. They're a leader. We can't challenge. In this church, when you're a leader, watch out, all right? Because you're going to be challenged to grow more than ever before. And you're going to get more feedback on how you could be doing better in your walk with the Lord than ever before. And you're going to model to other people that you're not done yet. That's our philosophy of spiritual growth. Chase it. Chase righteousness. What does that mean, though? All right. Write this down. When it comes to chasing righteousness, you have to understand you must receive righteousness from Jesus before you can chase it. So write that down. You've got to receive it from Jesus first before you can chase it. What do I mean by that? No matter how hard you try, you can never make yourself righteous without Christ. No matter how well you behave, you can never make yourself righteous without Christ. You will fail. The only way you can become righteous in the first place is by walking over to Jesus, the Son of God, and saying, I am not righteous, make me righteous. Then you pick up that righteousness that he gives you and you take it with you for the rest of your life. You can't find it anywhere else. Let me just say this, if you have never been to Christ and humbled yourself in front of him and said, I'm a sinner, I'm not righteous, I need you to give me righteousness. If you've never done that, you are not righteous in God's sight. If you've never been to Christ and gathered the righteousness only he can give you, you have no hope of chasing righteousness in this world. You can't. You've got to first pick it up from Christ. It says in Romans 3, to 24, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Righteousness is a gift God gives to you in Christ. It's the only place you can get it. And it's free. It's a gift. Did I tell you the story of how Lauren and I went to Sedona in Arizona? We stayed for a few days uh, a couple months ago. Did I tell you the story how we were walking around the streets of Sedona? We went into this shop and they were selling tours, Jeep tours of the Sedona area. And they were telling us, it sounded like fun, Valentine's Day was just a couple days away. So we said, well, we'd like to do it. But it was expensive. It was like 80 bucks a person maybe. And I was like, well, yeah, it'd be worth it. And the guy said, well, I could give it to you for free. I said, I like free. He said, all you have to do is come to a presentation Saturday morning and sit through a timeshare presentation, and then we'll give you a free Jeep tour. Oh, and by the way, we'll throw in a free three-night stay and a free $50 gift card. And I was like, I like free, but I kind of know about this timeshare thing. I've never been to one before, but I was told it's like a duel. You sit down, and it's like, who can wait out who? And if you make it to the end, they give you all this free stuff, right? So I said, all right, we'll do it. So Saturday morning, we walked in, sat down, and it was Valentine's Day. So they had this, they had this, this, uh, can, this champagne there with flowers, and you know, if you sign up today, we'll give you the champagne. And I'm like, I don't want the champagne. I want the free Jeep tour. So, so the guy came out, he was really nice, and he started presenting the timeshare presentation. How many of you have been through a timeshare presentation before? All right, now I kind of knew what to expect. So he's giving me the sales pitch, and I'm watching my watch because I only got, need to sit here for two hours. And I know at about the one hour and a half mark, he's going to bring out, you know, the bad cop. So he's talking, and I'm like, oh, that sounds great. Tell me more. 
Oh, yeah, that sounds fantastic. I'm not sold yet. And then right at about the hour and 30-minute mark, I just decide to start telling him about Jesus. I'm like, let me tell you about something. You're telling me all these numbers and points, and I grabbed his legal pad, and I'm like, here's how many times you sin in your life. Now, that's a big number. How are you going to get that number off your record? That's a big expense. And he's like, uh, I, don't, I don't think I sin that much. I'm like, okay, even if you sin once a day, would you agree you sin once a day? He waited a moment. He's like, all right. I said, okay, good. And uh, I said, that's how much... That's how much you're going to spend on sin in this lifetime. Let's say you sin twice a day. I did all this math and I showed him. And I said, look, how are you going to pay that price? Your platinum points don't work on this. I said, you're going to spend that much on sin in your life. Then you're going to stand before a holy God. You're going to go to judgment. And he was like, "Uh," and I said, listen, God will give you the free gift of eternal life and take all of this away if you trust his son. And then I grabbed his paper that lists all the awesome blessings that he wants to sell to me, and I circled the whole thing, and I said, will you give this to me for free? He's like, free? No, I can't do that. I said, then I'm making you a better offer than you're making me. Now, he lost track of time. And so he looks at his watch, and it's five minutes till. And he's like, oh, I'll be right back. So he goes and gets the angry elf. And then the angry elf comes out, right? And he's like, all right, sit back down. I'm like, time's up. And he's like, oh. I said, two hours. I want my free gift. And he said, all right, fine. He signed something. He's like, go head down to gifting and take your gift. And check it out. We actually were able to go on this Jeep tour in Sedona, and it was for free. We're free. You've got one more picture too, I think. We paid nothing. They paid it all. (laughs) The word free is a good word. Uh, The word free is the only word that describes how you can become righteous. You need Jesus to give you his righteousness for free. The way it works is on Good Friday, he died on the cross. On Easter Sunday, he rose again. He is a substitute for you. He died in your place, but he's also living in your place right now. So when Jesus steps up and stands in your place before God, all of your sins go away, but even better, get this, this is mind-blowing, all of Christ's righteousness is credited to your account. So when God looks at you, he sees you as if you've never sinned, and even better, he sees you as if you have always done everything perfectly righteous that he's required of you. And you become righteous because Christ stands in your place. It's a miracle, and it's free. That's how you become righteous. You can't work your way to it. You can't say enough Bible verses or attend church enough, or give enough money, or do enough good deeds, Jesus must stand in your place. But then, once he's there, standing in your place, he looks to you and he says, you've got a lot to learn. And he starts teaching you the righteousness that he's modeled. So write this down. You must learn righteousness from Jesus. You've got to receive righteousness from Jesus, and then you must learn righteousness from Jesus. The Bible says, find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what's right in God's sight. Let me just talk to those of you who are newer in your faith. Maybe you've been a Christian less than five years. Hey, I got saved in college. And the moment I got saved, I was righteous in God's sight forever. But I had a lot to learn. I had to learn how to pray. I didn't know how to read my Bible. I didn't know how to worship in church. I didn't know how to give. 
I didn't know any of that. I didn't know how to resolve conflict. Jesus had to teach me all of that over time. So if you feel like, wow, I've got so much to learn, you're right. But remember, you're already righteous in God's presence. Jesus is just teaching you how to live that righteousness out on a day-to-day basis. So you've got to receive it, and then you've got to learn it from Christ. This is why we're told to chase righteousness, to chase it. Because we're supposed to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. All right, so flee senseless and harmful desires. Chase righteousness. Number three, write this down. Chase godliness. Chase godliness. Godliness is a really important word in this book. It's used more in this book than any other book in the New Testament. So godliness, we learned a couple weeks ago, comes from a root word that means basically to step back. So the word that meant to step back um, then started to be used in religious circles. And um, it started to mean you're stepping back in reverence. Why? Because you are afraid or because you are in awe or because you are guilty and ashamed. Whatever the motive, you are stepping back from this supreme being in wonder or fear or guilt and putting proper distance between yourself and an awesome Holy Spiritual superior. Here's the thing, though. It's an external trait. This isn't an internal trait, like, oh, I'm feeling so godly. It's an external trait, meaning other people around you can see in your life the way you're living shows that you're doing this before a holy, awesome, supreme God. How do we chase godliness then? Well, write this down. It means having a holy fear of sinful beliefs and behaviors. Are you cultivating in your heart a holy fear of sin? Are you doing this to things that could ruin you? When God puts up a warning sign in the Bible, do you step back with reverent awe and put visible distance between yourself and that sin because you know it can ruin you? That's one way that you express godliness. I told you a couple weeks ago about the woman who crossed over the barrier in the zoo, right, and started feeding cookies to the lions and singing to them. Do you remember that news story? That's a, that's a picture of what an ungodly person does. They cross past the warning signs God puts, and they do, they do things that provoke God to judgment. They do things that let the lion of Satan devour them. And they do it where all can see. And other people are watching, and they're like, man, you're, why are you doing this? You're, I'm afraid for you. So godliness means developing a holy fear of sinful beliefs and behaviors. It's both behavior, what you do, and belief, what you think, guarding your doctrine and your life. Guarding both is what we're supposed to do. I see a lot of warning signs in the world, right? Check this out. This is one of the best warning signs I've ever seen. Warning, touching wires causes instant death. Skull, $200 fine, another skull. And that's such a funny sign too because it's like, well, what's the worst that can happen? And then someone else walks up and they're like, you didn't listen to the sign. $200, pay up dead. God puts warning signs up in his word. Time and time again, Christians are like, well, how bad can it be? Let's touch it. That shows no fear of God. The church is losing its fear of God. The church is training ungodly disciples who don't fear God's judgment. Our country has lost its fear of God, all right? And it's going to come back one day. What more does God need to do? 
read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah when God hurled flaming massive boulders from heaven on a city for its sin. What more does God need to do? We need to remember Pharaoh holding his firstborn son dead in his arms because he dared to provoke a holy God and go face-to-face, toe-to-toe with God. What more does he need to do? He filled the whole world with a flood and drowned everyone on it because they dared to provoke a holy and awesome God. What more does God need to do to convince you that you should be terrified of him when you sin? Some preachers say to Christians, you don't have to be afraid of God because you're got nothing to be afraid of. Jesus died for you. Read Ananias and Sapphira who were killed in church because they dared to sin before a holy God. We should be more afraid of sinning in God's presence than anything else. Sometimes when I counsel people who are playing with their sin and petting their sin and hugging their sin and tearful about leaving their sin, I say, I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid for you. God is going to mess you up. You think he's just going to sit by and watch this happen? You think he's going to let you skip down this trail with sin and do nothing? It's coming. Your judgment is coming. I'm afraid for you. John MacArthur said when a person becomes a Christian, that person is then and there declaring war on hell, and hell fights back. Satan will not let you just stroll down the path of righteousness and godliness. He will present you with temptations. He will make sin very easy and appealing. And God is putting up a warning sign in advance saying, chase godliness. Godliness is a holy fear of sinful beliefs and behaviors. It's also, in the positive sense, write this down, it's a humble devotion to biblical beliefs and behaviors. So you're fearing what's sinful, you're humbly devoted to what's biblical. So when you hear about what the Bible says... God says this about this area of my life. God says this about my marriage. Okay, I'm on board with that. God says this about raising my children. Okay, I'm totally on board. God says this about my finances. God says this about my tongue. God says this about my anger. Okay, I'm totally on board with that because God's way is always right. That's godliness. Ungodliness is, well, I don't know. Everyone has their own opinion. Well, it's just too hard right now. Well, I think this is a special circumstance. You're not humbly devoted to the truth found in God's word. You're putting distance between obedience and yourself. That's ungodliness. It's exciting to see so many college students who have called Harvest home, and I love when I hear those students who are saying, I want these four years to be my greatest years of spiritual growth ever. And it's sad to see those who are saying, well, how close can I get to sin without going over the line? This close? This close? This close? Mm, Playing games. Playing games, resenting their Christian upbringing, thinking it's time now to enjoy those things that they didn't get to enjoy with hugging the grizzly bear. Didn't get to do this when I was a kid. Feels pretty furry. That doesn't go well. Be humbly devoted to biblical beliefs and behaviors. Develop a holy fear of sinful beliefs and behaviors. It's a good time to ask yourself this. Are you chasing godliness? Are you chasing it? Are you running from ungodliness? So, is there anything in your life that God is convicting you on, saying there needs to be more distance between you and that? You have gotten far too comfortable with that. Doing that, going there, looking at that. 
reading that, being with that person, is God saying you're not properly distanced from your peril. God will convict you and he'll give you time. Then he'll bring judgment. At the same time, is there anything in your life God's saying you need to close the gap in that? You should be taking hold of that. You should be doing more of that, seeing more of that person, listening to what they're saying. Stop distancing yourself from what I'm asking you to do. That's godliness. Pursue it. Chase it. Run for it. Run from senseless and harmful desires. They'll plunge you into ruin and destruction. Chase righteousness. Receive it. Learn it. Chase godliness. Fear of sin. Devotion to what's biblical. Number four, write this down. Chase faith. Chase faith. Pastor James McDonald, who started the first harvest, once said this, nothing has nothing to do with faith in your life. Nothing has nothing to do with faith in your life. God is always working to build your faith. Faith is not just something that happened in your past. Faith found it. Faith never ends. It's like faith keeps going, 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 going. Faith doesn't end. So if you think, well, God already did everything he wanted to do in my past when I found Jesus, yeah, he ain't done with you yet. He's not done with you yet. He will constantly grow your faith. It's important to understand that faith does start with a crisis. Write this down. Saving faith means you have to trust Jesus to save you from sin. You have to trust Jesus to save you from sin. Peter, in his first sermon ever in the book of Acts, says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for the forgiveness of your sins. When you do that, you're saved. It's a crisis that happens in a moment and changes eternity. Are you saved? The only biblical way in the New Testament that we can prove we're saved initially is by being baptized. Have you been baptized to show you're saved? Have you publicly said, I've trusted Jesus as my Savior and I want everyone to see that I've been born again? That's how you show you're saved. Being saved happens once in a lifetime and it has to happen in your life. Do you have a story? Could you tell me your story of how and when you got saved? Could happen when you're five when you're 55, when you're 95, but you have to have a story. Sometimes people say, oh yeah, I pray all the time. No, that's not what I mean. I mean a moment where you get in front of a holy God and say, I'm sinful and I need a Savior to save me from everything right now. It's the crisis of faith. Faith starts with a crisis. The process of faith begins when the crisis of faith ends. And when you get saved, you're not saying that I, you have all the answers. You're not saying, well, I'm glad I figured all that. Sometimes people say, oh, well, I'll do that later after. I I need to learn some things. As if, like, faith is like graduation. It's not. Faith is like your birthday. It's the beginning. Faith doesn't mean you have all the answers. Faith doesn't mean you'll never doubt. Faith means your relationship to the truth about Jesus has changed. Faith means you are married to the truth. Till death do you part. You are clinging to with a white-knuckle grip to the truth that you heard about the risen Savior and you're never letting it go. Then starts the process of learning to live out this faith day in and day out. That's called walking faith. Write this down. Walking faith means to follow Jesus through all the changing seasons of life. Faith begins in a crisis, but then it continues in a process till the day you die. Is your faith growing? Between 
Last year and now, has your faith grown at all? Is God taking you places, teaching you things, stretching you in certain areas? Is your faith growing? Uh, Too often people come to church and they don't want their faith to grow. They'll just be happy if God just doesn't touch anything ever again and they just have the same life they have right now and they don't want to change, right? They want to hop on a bike going nowhere. Check it out. This is a bike going nowhere. You get on this bike, you'll end up nowhere. And that's what people want from faith. They just want God to do nothing. That's not going to happen. Is your faith growing? I can tell you how God grows your faith. He brings a trial into your life that drives you to your knees. He brings a conflict, a hard person, a relationship in your home, your church, or your world. Because it's so hard to get along with that person, he starts growing your faith. He brings a need into your life that you can't meet. A financial crisis or something you need that you don't have, something that you had that you lost, he brings a need. All of that to remind you, Christian, that you won't make it through this life unless you have a Savior. You will constantly forget your own need of a Savior. So God will teach you faith. He'll do it through trials. Do you remember the game of Oregon Trail growing up? How many of you played that game growing up, Oregon Trail? I played it on the old computer. It only had two colors, right? Green and light green. It was just hideous. And played it on that computer. And then they came out with an app a couple of years ago, an Oregon Trail app. So I played with my kids. It didn't go so well. Not at all. My daughter Ellie got bit by a snake. My son Jared died of a broken leg. My daughter Cassie got carried off by a hawk. Maybe you feel like you're living in Oregon Trail. The wagon's on fire. Nothing's going right. And you start to wonder why God isn't doing anything to fix it all. It's because he wants to grow your faith. It's because he will grow your faith. He'll use pain and suffering and trials to display your faith and to grow it. Isaiah 7, 9 says this, If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. What is it that God's using to keep you up at night? What is it that God is using to drive you to cry out to him? Is there a boulder you aren't strong enough to lift? Is there a problem you're not smart enough to solve? Is there a person you aren't able to save or even endure? He will use these things to grow your faith. Think of what Jesus did to his disciples. He never stopped growing their faith. Just think of Peter. What did he do? Go out in the boat. Throw the net over the side. They had a miraculous catch. The boat started to sink. What did Peter do? He threw himself in front of the Lord and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. It was at that moment when he confessed his sinfulness that Jesus said, Come follow me. I'll make you a fisher of men. You see, when Peter, driven to his knees before Christ because of a crisis of faith, confessed his need, that's when he got to be an apostle. But Jesus didn't stop growing him. Then what happened? Disciples were out in the boat. The storm came. Jesus was asleep. So Jesus is still in the boat, but he's asleep. What do they do? They freak out. We're going to die. Wake him up. We're going to die. Jesus gets up and he's like, be still. Then he turned to them. You remember what he said? Where is your Where is your faith? Then what happened next? They're out. It's getting dark. Jesus is no longer in the boat. They're out on the sea, and Jesus comes walking out on the water. And they see him, and what do they do? They think he's a ghost. It's a ghost! We're going to die! And Jesus is like, no, it's me. 
And then Peter, who doesn't think things through all the time, says, well, if it's you, call me out there on the water. All right, come on out. If it's a ghost, now Peter's going to die. So this is a bad plan. All right, come on out on the water. No more boat. Now Peter's out of the boat. And he's standing. And then he sees the wheel. Oh, it's a big wave. Then Jesus grabs him and says what? Why did you doubt? Jesus keeps growing your faith. First he's in the boat, then he's asleep, then he's out of the boat, then you're out of the boat. It didn't end there. Remember, Peter's faith failed. He denied Christ. I never knew him! He denied Christ three times. Jesus then was on the shore after his resurrection. Peter's out on the boat again. And Jesus calls out to them. Peter, knowing it's Jesus, what does he do? He leaps out of the boat and he swims to shore. And there on shore, full circle, Jesus restores Peter and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And restores his faith. That cycle is going to happen in your life a hundred times where Jesus keeps asking you more and more and more and then you flop and then he puts you back together. He's never going to stop growing your faith. So you need to stop fighting him on it and embrace it. That's what a good dad does. He teaches his kids new things. Flee senseless and harmful desires. Chase righteousness. Chase godliness. Chase faith. Starts when you have saving faith in Christ. It continues when you put one foot in front of another, following Jesus through every season of life. Ask God to grow your faith. Ask Him to teach you endurance. Ask Him to increase your capacity. Never ask Him to leave you alone, because He won't. Well, God is calling us to pick up the pace. Get in the race. We're being pursued by things that will knock us off the course, and he's saying get after these things. So what is it in your life that he's saying to you today? He wants you to try with all of his might. He wants you to do nothing without Jesus. He wants you to do what is right. He wants you to step back in holy fear of what is wrong. He wants you to walk by faith, come what may. Whatever you're going through right now, I think it's an appropriate ending here for you to go in front of a holy God and lift up your struggles in faith to him. Let's do that right now. Let's just bow our heads. Let's close our eyes. And let's bring our hearts before him, asking him to stretch us and grow us and teach us. Let's do that right now. Father in heaven, we believe that we stand righteous, perfect, complete, and holy in your presence because the spotless Lamb of God stands in our place. Because you've given us the free gift of righteousness, we will be presented in your presence, unashamed, with great joy. We will be brought before you, holy, blameless, above reproach. We don't need to fake it anymore. We thank you for this gift. We have a lot to learn. So we simply come before you and we ask that you would help us. Lord, we pray first that you would convict us of the sin that we're getting too close to, the sin that we're loving too much. We ask that you would help us to cast off these idols, run away from them, put a safe distance between us and our peril, to have a clear conscience before a holy God. We ask that you would direct us towards the things that you want us to pursue. Help us to learn what is right. 
Help us to reflect on the outside a love and devotion to you. We pray that you would help us, O Lord, to walk by faith and not by sight, trusting you through every trial, remembering that you're good, your promises are true. And I think of those right now who maybe are at the very beginning of a personal relationship with Christ. Maybe last week, maybe this week, they've understood that they stand condemned before a holy God. But Jesus came to stand in their place. Maybe they're ready to cry out by faith and to ask Jesus to be a savior. Maybe they're ready to go public and to tell the church that they are indeed followers of Christ. Lord, in their own hearts, may they cry out this morning, Jesus, save me. And may you hear them. May you begin them on their journey of righteousness and godliness and faith. May they remember the promise you will never leave them, you will never forsake them. We ask that you would grow us, Lord, for your glory. In your name, amen.